0: Welcome to the Kindling's Muse Podcast,
1: an intelligent, imaginative, hospitable exploration of ideas that matter in contemporary life. Well, Welcome, everyone. It's a lovely evening here in Seattle, Washington, here at Hale's Ales Brewery and Pub in Fremont, the center of the universe. Um, we welcome you all here tonight to a lovely evening to discuss the Academy Awards show coming up in a couple of weeks for the nominees for Best Picture for the year 2015. Now, the first Academy Awards took place in 1927, uh, which was in the Blossom Room of the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, commemorating the films that had come out that year, and each year the best picture topics have really been kind of a, a, a canary in a coal mine, if you will, for our culture. A real picture, uh, picture, if you will, in pun intended, of, of where our culture stands, on what it values, what it thinks is the story that should dominate our lives, should frame us, and really kind of lift us up and also maybe push us back a little bit. When you're spending upwards of 10, 20 $50, 100000000 million on something, there's a group of people who think this is an important story for you to hear. And tonight, we're going to look at eight of those stories in the Best Picture category. So just to remind you, those listening to the podcast and our audience, the Best Picture nominees for this year are, drum roll, The Big Short, Bridge of Spies, Brooklyn, Mad Max, Fury Road, The Martian, The Revenant, Room, and Spotlight. Now, before we jump into this, we are going to break these films up and talk about them each in sequence. Let me introduce our great panel to you tonight. First of all, um, a returning host and member of our panel, writer, teacher, and critic at large, Jeffrey Overstreet. Um, He hosts his own website, Looking Closer, publishing regular updates on his cultural reflections. Jeff is a published author and novelist, um, and also just now completing his MFA and is a much-after speaker and teacher. Let's give it up for Jeffrey Overstreet. (laughs) Jenny Spohr is a regular panelist with us here at the Kinlings. Uh, Jenny is an author and ordained clergy person. Uh, her second novel in the realm series, God and King, has, has come out to rave reviews. Um, one reviewer actually said that it helped spark their imagination, and I love that. Um, uh, in the world of 16th century Europe um, and during the Reformation, Jenny's work in historical fiction continues on, and we're just glad to have her with us. So let's give it up for Jenny over Jenny, Overs- <laughs> Jenny, oh, my Jenny Spohr. God, my we're getting too intimate up here. That's right. Um, And also we have on our panel tonight Anna Miller, a Kinley Hearth alum and panelist. Anna holds a Master of Divinity degree uh, from Seattle Pacific Seminary and is also active in our movement, as she has been for a number of years. She's a performance artist and has a background including improv theater with Jet City Improv and the Dinner Detective Murder Mystery, as well as vocal performance. So let's give it up for Anna Miller. So tonight we're going to take the films in two categories, and the uh, analogy we're going to use is wide lens and zoom lens for tonight. Our first act, we're going to be looking at the wide lens, taking the big picture in films that really kind of want you to enlarge everything from spectacle to apocalypse to the world beyond the one you're walking around in right now. And before we jump into that, I just want to uh, get, We need. We, as a panel, we wanted to get some things on the table. One of the things that came out this year in the Oscar nominations was just, frankly, how white the nominations actually were. Uh, a movement on Twitter called Oscars So White blew up. Uh, in Instagram, lots of pictures being shown as far as how the Oscars seem to overlook and in many ways push back uh, directors and performers who um, should have been nominated. Uh, and so I wanted to make sure to talk to our panelists to get on that. Uh, get that point as well um what are some of your thoughts about the reaction is it justified um in looking at the performance if you look at the percentage of actors who are actually in and enrolled the percentage of those who made it possibly the percent some people have argued the percentage is actually correct others say it's an absolute oversight when people like michael b jordan and creed it gets overlooked i totally agree there you go um you know so so what are some of your what do you panelists what do you think mm-hmm. chime in
2: well, I think this, uh, that this comes up about the Oscars is kind of a shame, because it's such a problem everywhere. Um, and the Oscars have so many other problems, fracturing and skewing results, that of course, this is a problem at the Oscars. Um, I think, but I think to, to try and fix the Oscars is, um, and we can talk about this when we talk about Mad Max Fury Road, where do you address a problem in culture? Do you depart and go and do something else, or do you try and fix it at the root? And uh, I think at the root of the Oscars problem is um, the the arts in general. And um, are we um, as, and when I say we, I mean as a, a majority um, white culture in America, giving, actively seeking to give, to share power in a changing world where, you um, uh, you know, ratios are changing dramatically. So I think until um, actors of other cultures are given more resources, are listened to more faithfully, are given um, more time on on the stage, um, are involved in all kinds of projects and given an active voice there, uh, I don't think we're going to see Oscars change. Uh, I think we need more filmmakers from all cultures. I think the Oscars need to look at films from all over the world, not just America. I mean, if we, if we make this a problem in America, then we're already in trouble because we're talking about a global culture of art now. Right. And, I mean, frankly, the two or three of the top ten films I saw this year um, came from Iran. So those aren't even being discussed at the Oscars. Um, so I think that the problem is much more about learning to listen and listen to and love your neighbors uh, actively, aggressively, uh, than it is about, well, we need to be sure we nominate differently. I mean, that's part of the problem too, but it, that, that, should com- that should happen automatically if the problems at the source are, are okay.
3: fixed. Right, well, yeah. I, mean, I think yeah, part Jenny, of the problems yeah. at the source are that the academy voters are made up of boomer white men. And so y- as a viewer, you're going to vote for things that impact you as a boomer white man, I'm not saying that boomer white men can't look past their boomer whiteness, maleness, I mean, many do, but as far as not even looking at t- Straight out of Compton or looking at Creed and only seeing Sly Sloan and seeing the white, you know, white producers or right, writers behind um, Voices of Color, I mean, that that's obviously a huge problem. And it, it was actually interesting, I was listening to um, a radio spot this morning about... Um, Native Americans being disappointed that there's a boycott this year because it's the first time in The Revenant there's a film where actual Native people were cast to play Native roles in years, right? And so it's their first time on the red carpet in in years. Uh, and so they're disappointed that, that, you know, this is the year that's been chosen versus, like, last year when Selma, like David Ollielio, the director, not nominated, um, but it's certainly all coming to a head this year. And I, I am... Desperately waiting to see what Chris Rock does with this all.
1: It's it's, yeah. it's going to be amazing. Yeah, Chris Rock is the host. Yeah, Anna, anything from you on this?
4: Well, I mean, I think it's actually probably a larger, more systemic move um, on people of color within the entertainment industry. I think there's probably a lot of thought put into why this year. And I, th- I agree with the things that, Chef, you said about it being a larger systemic issue. Um, I agree that, yes, the Academy is mostly white, older men. Um But I think that we have to support our brothers and sisters of color and give them the benefit of the doubt that they're doing this and that they know why they're doing it and that there's more thought behind it than just trying to cause some Problems,
2: so. We should we should acknowledge, by the way, that, that this is a panel of, of four white folks. Right. Um, yeah. And As if they couldn't tell,
3: but, you
2: know, you know yeah. some, something yep. something to think about. Yeah. Um, no. No. And not, not something to act on.
1: No. No. It's absolutely absolutely, and there's certainly a sense of identification in the midst of this. that's key. Um, And maybe we'll come up to this as well in the Q&A time as we talk more about this. But let's go through some of the films now. And let's take a wide lens to see what the wide lens pictures are. So first of all, let's start with Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, Mad Max is a reboot of a long franchise that gave the world Mel Gibson. um, And so we can give thanks for that. Um, The film stars Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron, uh, directed by George Miller, who was with the original franchise and brought it back in full glory. Uh, Jeff Overstreet, what did you think about Mad Max Fury Road as a nominee?
2: Um, as I wasn't a big fan of the original series, so I went in sort of guardedly and came away with uh, mixed feelings the first time. Um, partly because I am so burned out on comic book movies and just hyper-violent entertainment in general. Uh, so I just kind of came away with those sore spots being <laughs> being struck <laughs> hard. And uh, But then I started reading a lot of my favorite critics, which um, when, when I find myself in, you know, in stark disagreement with several of them, I have to stop and think, maybe that was more about me than it was about the movie. went back and started really asking, well, are they, just, are, are they fanboys who have fancy vocabulary to defend what they like? And I really started being impressed with how much more is going on in this film under the noise of the violence, which really reflects what's going on in the world, um, to see just how cleverly and subversively George Miller, the director, by the way, of Happy Feet and Babe. um, Babe uh, Pig in the City. Well, and Babe Pig in the City, right. Yeah, right, right. yeah. He he, he was a sequel, yeah, yeah. Sort of became the road warrior of pig movies. Yeah, that's right. Um, (laughs) How he actively subverts the conventions and stereotypes so that the guy who's usually the hero, you know, the, the hypermasculine drifter, um, is captured at the beginning and jailed and tried to es- tries to escape and gets captured again, and ends up tied to the front of a car being used as a blood bag for the tyrant and his war boys who need constant blood infusions during their violent uh, conquests. So he's actively humiliated from the beginning which I think in the heat of the violence, it's easy to miss that and just think, oh, this is cool. Um, but who, who instigates all the action? It's the women who are sex slaves trying to escape this tribe of extremely white characters. Yes. <laughs> um, the war boys are painted white, I think, as an yet another not so subtle exaggeration of what's going on. Um, and they are trying to escape and get back to a more natural life in this post-apocalyptic wasteland. And it's so amazing, as I watched it the second and third and fourth time, how at every turn, they really hold the power. They are the ones who are thinking. They are the ones who have prepared for this, and they know what their objective is, which is not just escape, but eventually a, um, a restoration of the world they once knew. And so while at first I reacted against the fact that they were dressed up like Vanity Fair supermodels, and look starved to within an inch of their lives, um, I started thinking, well, that is what the men in this movie have made them. And the camera does not worship them in a a lurid way. Uh, The camera respects them. And in so many shots, they're the ones taking wise and sacrificial action. Um, And so all of these stereotypes I had in my head that I just assumed the film fulfilled just started crumbling as I watched it again. There are also, just on the level of artistry, um, amazing things going on. There's a fantastic video you can find of how George Miller made this action movie different than any other action movie you've ever seen. And it made so much sense when I read it. He puts all of the information you need in almost every shot in the film in the very center of the screen so that your eyes rest while the movie is crazy. Yeah. And so I paid attention to that the second time. I'm like, I am not tired in the sense that I'm rattled and confused after most Marvel action movies, when my eyes are constantly trying to figure out what to lock onto in every fast-cut shot. And it's almost funny when you know that this is working, right. because everything. sometimes stuff is flying at you in the middle of the screen to make sure you notice it. And all you have to do is logically connect the dots. So it's it's masterful in storytelling. The performances are amazing, especially Theron, who... I hope the sequels are about her. I'm afraid they won't be, but she dominates this film. Um, and Max actually kind of, you almost don't need him. You almost yeah. don't need him except for that moment when he has a word of wisdom about hope is not out there. Hope is about fixing what's where we came from. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jenny, yeah. any thoughts on Mad Max?
3: Uh, yeah, it's funny. Tom Hardy um, acts with his eyes, as <laughs> <laughs> they say, the yeah. entire movie. I mean, he doesn't talk. He just grunts. Yeah until he has (laughs) that little speech on the motorcycles. and um, Yeah, it is profound that the women really are the salvation of this film. There's a lot of these Eden-esque, there's a pregnant woman, there's all of these images that, yeah, they're going back to Eden, they're going to remake Eden, and it's the women that are going to do it and set the people free.
1: Yeah, and there's a very overt iconography in the film as well, that um, if you you have eyes to see, um, Tom Hardy literally begins as a Christ figure. He's brought through kind of a, a tomb like place, um, drawn down into it. He becomes then the source of blood to feed um, the people in the car. Um, he's sprawled out in front of the car in a cruciform kind of way. So he's literally a kind of a, a crucifixion at 200 miles an hour coming at you on a regular basis. Um, but then also this idea of new birth. I mean, you bi- basically it's like, where are we going to find the Virgin Mary again? And when can we bring her back? And, and so you get these two counterpoints of, of, of all this death, yet all this life at the same time. Um, And the part that I I really appreciated about George Miller's direction in this, what what Jeff brought up as far as the cinematography, is that he really does create every inch of the screen is used with intentional purpose. There's not a wasted pixel anywhere on that screen. And so if you really want to talk about what is true film... You know, it's there's nothing wasted there. There's everything has a purpose, and so it and the iconography of living trees, of of going back to the tree of the you know, knowledge of good and evil, of finding Eden. I mean, all of that's just blatantly and there. The trees destroyed. Right? And the, yeah, no oh, spoiler yeah. alert. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, no, no. <laughs> uh, yeah. When they go through those mudslides. Yeah, yes, yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. Like mud So there's so trees. there's all these things that are there that are just really, um, and I'll use this as a as analogy, very pregnant with meaning, uh, throughout the film. Uh, Let's let's move on to the the next film, The Revenant. Uh, The Revenant stars uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, who survived the Titanic, spoiler alert, um, and um, and, um, has uh, has come to us in the form of a, um, uh, boy, I don't even know how to describe the character. He's a trapper. Trapper. Yep, uh, the the film is shot um, in a cinema verite, meaning that you know it's it's as naturalistic as it's gonna get. Um, the actors were put in in actual cold, freezing environments, freezing cold rivers. This is not stunt people. This is real people being cold. Um, it was shot in natural light, so the extension of the shot went for a very long time using what's called the golden hour. So it's real light that you're seeing as opposed to um, light produced. So all of that creates this very lush uh environment for a film that's incredibly violent as well uh jenny talk to us a little about the revenant and kind of what we should look for in that film
3: yeah it's very it's, it does have kind of that Ma- terrence malick feel to it a little bit of there's there's a lot of breath there's a lot of wind um going on and s- you know spirits speaking in the wind and all of these things but anyhow the revenant yes leonardo DiCaprio plays this uh fur trapper it's based Off a true ish story, but it's really a legend that this guy was fur trapping and he was attacked by a bear and he basically crawled his way back to camp, however many miles that is. It's anywhere from 25 to 200, we don't know, right? It's just uh, the story's gone. And he's left for dead because he'd been attacked by a bear and he's with these other trappers and two trappers volunteer for a bunch of money to stay back with him, in the in the true story and sort of in, in The Revenant. And basically they're like, eh, he's gonna die, we're just gonna leave him. So he's left. There's more things that happen that I don't want to spoil, but anyhow, Leo is left for dead um, and literally does the crawling on his elbows um, because his legs are broken. Uh, it's Really painful to watch because you're fi- because it's filmed in such a realistic style. You really are cold, um, wear a coat <laughs> watching this movie. Um, but ultimately, the movie is about a man who is hell-bent on revenge. Uh, it really is beautifully shot. Uh, it tackles themes of grief, what's a motivation as a human being to stay alive. It talks about our connectivity to the natural world. Uh, there's also a lot of these contrasts between blood and snow, the blood on the snow, um, how it's melting the snow, and how the shedding of blood keeps us alive, but it also can kill us, like kill our soul, kill who we are, kill our humanity. Uh, So it's, as far as an Oscar film, it has all those components, beautifully shot, well acted, although I think Tom Hardy, yet again, in another Oscar film this year, does an incredible job Versus Leonardo DiCaprio just grunts and shivers the whole time. But he's grunting and shivering because it's like below 25 outside. So I'm like, yeah, Leo, you're not, you know, that's not much acting for me. But anyhow, fine, he'll probably get the Oscar. Uh, But yeah, it does conquer a lot of these deep sort of theological and also um, what it means to be human and what do we strive for. Is revenge enough to keep us going? Um, Or really is it life and the life that we can give that keeps us going in the
1: end. Yeah. Uh, So, Anna, Jeff, anything on the revenant, Um, other than the idea that crawling inside a horse at night is always (laughs) a good idea?
3: Yeah. (laughs) And let me describe the name for a minute, because nobody knew what the name meant. And the name, it does not have a really good um, synonym in the English language, but it basically means sort of a ghostly presence.
1: The revenant, yeah. Yeah, the Mm.
3: revenant is sort of this ghostly presence that is always with you.
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean,
4: I the thing that I like the most were the still shots in the film, where it's very wide angle shots of you know some looking up th- through trees and the landscape and water and all of that, kind of gave me a chance to breathe. That that movie was very intense to me, and all of those moments gave me a chance to center and remember that this was just a movie and that I wasn't being chased by a bear myself. Um, but I I didn't really enjoy it that much. It was just like a story of. Again, another white guy. I would have rather heard the story of the Native Americans.
3: Yeah, there was an, well, and there was a Native daughter that was um, captured, and there's a Native tribe that's searching for her, for the daughter of this tribe. And yeah, that would have been a much more interesting story. I agree.
2: Yeah.
1: Jeff, anything on for you?
2: Um, yeah, just cut me off. When, 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 when <laughs> um, I, this movie f- frustrates me um, in a way that few do, because so much of it is done so well. Um, just the scale of it, the cinematography you, you mentioned Terence Malik well it 's Emmanuel Lubesky, the cinematographer who did the New world, and so many of these shots are right out of the new world he 's just gotten better, and so they're better versions of those shots there's a, a video you can find on YouTube now that compares many shots from the film to classic shots from the films of Andrei Tarkovsky, where they 're almost identical and um, There are so many things in the film that look great, but I'm constantly thinking about how great they look. I know I've quoted this before where where Michael Caine says, if you are watching this movie and thinking, Michael Caine is giving a great performance, then I have failed. Um, My suspension of disbelief never even happened in this movie because I was so busy thinking, wow, how did they do that? How did they do that? And on top of that, the the fact that the, the aesthetics are so glorious, I just wanted to wander off into those woods and and live with these Native American characters or any, any characters who were interesting, rather than following these brutes who were having playground arguments and calling each other girls, um, which even in the even in the climactic battle, and I say more than that, but it's still just about calling family members you know degrading names, after all of these sort of uh, disingenuous leanings toward a spiritual. Um, exploration. They find a ruined chapel where you see a crucifix. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, this is interesting. But then they quickly uh, bail on those ideas. Um, When the actual legend they're basing this on ends in a very redemptive way, and they throw that out the window too. So it really took me back to Peter Jackson, and I've talked about this on The Kindlings before too, describing why he changed the ending of The Lord of the Rings in the movies the ending of The Lord of the Rings is very much about the corrupting nature of power and you're left grieving the failure of a character. And Jackson said he changed it because audiences have to have a hero. And in this case, they have to have a white male hero. And so everybody else in the movie becomes a prop for him. And now I'm quoting another critic named Melissa Taminga who brilliantly diagnosed this film as, every event is to give the white male character a reason to continue his revenge quest. Um, If there is a Native American princess, something awful will happen to her, so he has a chance to go and try and rescue her. You know, over and over and over again. And I would have been interested in any of those stories. I think those would have been great stories to tell. But we've got to get Leo his Oscar. And um, once again, it's going to be a case of he deserved it for so many other films. Uh, But once he's reduced to being practically barely alive in front of the camera, um, but you've got me wondering now, with the idea of the revenant as a ghostly presence in the film, the camera is constantly coming to our attention when people like breathe on it or blood gets spattered yeah. on it. I almost wonder if we're to wonder if the revenant isn't the camera, isn't us. Isn't well, us. the
3: final shot is um, Leonardo DiCaprio careful. staring straight at <laughs> yeah. the camera. I mean, he's right. breaking that third wall, which is so strange because it's not. Yeah, it's. A Why are you, what point are you trying to make here with him breaking that third wall?
1: So, um, Carlo, uh, you were going to chime in. Yeah. I mean, right now I'm thinking a lot about post-colonial stuff, so watching The Revenant was rather poignant. Yeah. But uh, the white man gets mauled by a bear, so that was fun. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well, th- well th- and, and on that note uh, yeah exactly um, so one of the things about these films we've just mentioned the Mad Max and the Revenant both films have as a character not scripted necessarily but implied is the sustaining power of the earth um, Mad Max is about the decimation of, of an entire planet based upon nuclear holocaust and can we survive in the aftermath the Revenant um, this idea of the Edenic I, you, know, surroundings, you know, like many Terrence Malick movies and others, the whispering reality of nature. If we just listen and pay attention, maybe we learn something. Which brings us to The Martian. Uh, the Martian, directed by Ridley Scott. Uh, famously for a number of films including Blade Runner uh, returns to science fiction after a long time away um, and brings us this story which is really kind of a kind of success story uh, a, a man who writes a novel based upon you know his own interest in being a sci-fi geek um, blows up and becomes a huge novel success and then gets bought by all people of Ridley Scott to be made in a film with Jason Bourne himself Matt Damon uh, the, really the, the film the Martian um, has comedic turns um, includes a really interesting cast um, and and takes us to a planet where the question of survival is dependent upon sheer willpower and science. Uh, Anna, what did you think about The Martian?
4: Um, it was kind of the same story as, as The Revenant, except there was no revenge. Um, I thought it was an enjoyable movie. Uh, my suspension of disbelief stayed longer than I expected it to. Um, it kind of reminded me of Gravity, uh, but I was able to stay with it much longer than I was able to stay with Gravity. My favorite was, I guess, the ingenuity that um, had to happen with the making the potatoes grow and all of those things. But it was it was a feel good, nice movie. But I d- it I don't was think it it's was MacGyver in space. Yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah, it was yeah, any yeah, sort yeah. of Oscar worthy nomination. Right. It felt
3: like to me, it felt like NASA doing stand up. I mean, it was just all these but dum ching science joke, you know, with yeah. Matt Damon. It did not, it really felt like NASA paid someone to make a film for them. It, yeah, it just yeah. was, there was nothing, yeah, I was bored with him yeah. in about like 20 uh, minutes. Okay. In.
1: Yeah, Jeff, anything on The, on the Martian?
2: Um, I was encouraged to see a film that doesn't need a villain. Um, yeah. I mean, there are, there are forces pushing back against mm-hmm. his rescue, but very, I mean, I think you could argue reasonable forces pushing back, but um, it's sort of, it was distracting to me throughout how it's constantly sort of winking at other movies. I mean, we've got another, it's Saving Private Ryan, only this time it's Saving Astronaut Ryan. You've got, mm-hmm. you've got Sean Bean yeah. in yeah. a scene where there is a joke about... The Council also of the Elrond, Elrond. Yeah. Or The Lord I mean. of the Rings. And they almost pause and look at him for a moment yeah. as if he might say something. There were lots of little things like that that sort of threw me. But I really just enjoyed the spirit of it. I think we need more yeah. movies like this. I think kids are going to be inspired by it. Yeah. Um, and, so, and, and I love the story of how it came to be. I think we need stories yeah. like that to believe such things are possible for writers who look at the landscape and go, what is the point?
1: Yeah, so. yeah. yeah my, uh, my daughters read the novel. Um, when it came out and loved it. Um, just as kind of as all hitting on all the science stuff that they actually loved. They loved the ingenuity of it. They loved kind of cross-referencing it. They were Googling to see, was this possible? Did they get those facts right? They were kind of questioning whether this was right, and they were kind of fact-checking back and forth. Um, and they were then disheartened when they saw the movie, because they actually left out many of the things that they were they wanted more geekery in the film, and it became much more dramatic. Um, I certainly thought that it was, a, it was a fun movie. It was an enjoyable movie. Um, I thought the shots of mars were well done um again i haven't been there myself um but but it looked good um and uh and some of the supporting cast as well i thought was good but i i, I was actually quite surprised it was nominated and so probably in the list that we have tonight is probably the one i think is the least likely um to move forward it's, even though it's
2: ridley scott though and he's one of those who you know if you go in for these they owe it to him right. oh, no, i no,
1: exactly yep and so speaking of that, um, Bridge of Spies. Um, uh, Bridge of Spies was directed by Steven Spielberg, um, a name that some people may know from a host of different movies. Um, Bridge of Spies stars Tom Hanks, um, who, as I've told my panel back in the green room, I have a love-hate relationship with. Love and bosom buddies. Don't like him in most anything else. Um, and that's just me. I know he's one of America's most loved actors, but he's with one Oscar away from actually getting more Oscars than Jimmy Stewart. And any man who's going to win more than Jimmy Stewart is a man I have to stop, so um, so, I, so I stand against Tom Hanks on that point. But in all seriousness, Tom, uh, Bridge of Spies is based on, again, a historical event um, that's been chronicled with regards to the trading of secrets and the moving back and forth of people who are captured um, during the Cold War. Um, this also has some amazing performances in it. Um, Jeff Overstreet, why don't you talk a little bit about Bridge of Spies with this time?
2: Well, Brid- Bridge of Spies is, um, it fits into this sort of late career Spielberg where he's very interested in history. He's very interested in what America says it is and what it really is. And so it's really examining do we have the courage of our convictions when we are going to go face another country and do some kind of deal to uh, get a prisoner released? Um, Do we care about everybody or are we only interested in, in... our own interests, to put it badly. But um, the Tom Hanks character is very much a Jimmy Stewart kind of character who, who has that American ideal at heart and finds himself pushing back against all of America to make it happen and really uh, risking his life to do some um, shady deals in order to get several people released, if possible. Um, and that I find very inspiring. It sounds like a Spielberg movie. It sounds old-fashioned. It sounds like something we need right now to remember what America says it is about. Um, Whether or not that works in the context of a movie where you have an actor like Mark Rylance Mm -hmm. playing um, a character so much more sophisticated, so much more realistic, and frankly, for me, so much more interesting than anything else in the film, and the movie begins focusing on him and is he or isn't he a spy, uh, what is he doing to, to um, clear his tracks when he knows he's being hunted? Uh, I found that so fascinating that once he was incarcerated, I felt a lot of the movie's energy dissipating. Um, it remained interesting to me that Tom Hanks was playing basically a negotiator. We used to see him play sort of a jolly character right, right. Um, or, or just a principled man. But here he's devious. When we first see him, yeah. he's in a conversation where he's playing cards to make things happen. And uh, you figure that's probably the way he has to be in Hollywood to get all of these great parts. Yeah. But um, we haven't seen him play someone so devious and intelligent. And so that made his performance interesting to me. Um, ultimately, though, I felt like it was a film stylistically at war with itself, where it was telling a very gritty story, but trying also to be... I don't know. I guess it's it's best to to refer to the cinematography again and say that uh, Kaminsky loves and seems kind of addicted to this very milky white light that's always coming in windows. And he was doing that a lot in um, Lincoln, right? Um, trying to make it very painterly. And that kind of feels removed from the, wh- where this story really uh, – the tracks it's on. Um, and so it, it wants to be very romantic and idealistic visually, um, but I think this, this story called for something messier. Um, so at the end, I felt more of the Hollywood sweep yeah. of emotion um, until that last moment, which I won't describe, but I think the last moment for, for just maybe four seconds, five seconds, mm-hmm. Spielberg gets – back, something we saw from him in Empire of the Sun, something we saw from him um, in Munich, a a startling realism that is is sobering about the cost of doing the right thing. And this character is so haunted by the end. Um, And for a moment, the camera lets something like that happen, and I was like, that's the movie I wanted.
1: Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah, absolutely agree. It happens on a train, by the way, just to let you know that. Yeah, I'm Um, sorry, I'm not giving you, uh,
2: you just have to see it.
1: And I will say, you know, for my for my comments about Tom Hanks, I thought it was one of the best performances I've seen him in, in a long time. I thought that he's finally evolved into, I think, the actor he's always wanted to be, um, which is kind of the elder statesman, um, person who represents patriotism, but a nuanced patriotism in a particular way. Um, I also really felt that one of the things that the film got right was that it really showed the, the incredible complexity that goes into negotiating between countries, and it spends a long time really building up to this Bridge of Spies moment. And when you finally get there... It becomes so anticlimactic because you realize all the things that have to be done to get all the all the all the compromises of ideals that have to move forward in order for something to happen like this that it becomes very bittersweet um, even though it's supposed to be a great victory in the end, which I thought was very human in many ways
2: we shouldn't move on in a Kindling's discussion with you at the table without noting that Bono's daughter is in this film
1: that's right, that's right, yeah, duly noted duly noted, that's right um, and on that note, um, that we've now kind of mentioned the patron saint of my life um, uh, we are, we're going to take a break here at the Kindling's Muse, as we're going to come back and we're going to move from our wide lens spectacles and apocalypse, to moving into the close-up lens of human frailty, systems of corruption in the heart with our other films, so join us as we come back here at the Kindling's Muse, or here at our Oscar show, we'll be back in a moment Welcome back, everybody, to the Kindling's Muse here at Hales, Ales Brewery and Pub. I'm Jeff Kuse, your host of the Kindling's Muse. This is also our panel tonight on the Best Picture Oscars. We're joined tonight by Jeffrey Overstreet, Anna Miller, and Jenny Spohr. In our first act, we're looking at kind of movies that have been nominated that are big spectacles, apocalypse, world beyond... Mad Max Fury Road, The Revenant, The Martian, Bridge of Spies, and now we're going to take a reverse zoom lens and look at the close-up pictures of human frailty, systems of corruption, and the human heart, and we're going to begin tonight with The Big Short, uh, a film that was produced by Brad Pitt, uh, among others, um, looking at the question of the housing crisis, and uh, Anna, tell us a little bit about the film and some reactions you had to it.
4: Yeah, so I mean, I think most people probably know it's basically a film about uh, the housing market crash and how the system allowed something like that to happen and how a few smart and lucky guys happened to figure it out in, in advance and make a lot of money off of it. Um, I actually really enjoyed it. I thought it was, out of the ones that I saw on the list, I thought that it was uh, the most enjoyable and had the most um, to say story-wise um, there is something about, even the fact of the way we started the show with talking about protesting, um, I guess, Oscars in America, so to speak, uh, everything that's happening in our society right now, I think this film points to it in a way that none of the others really did, um, that there is a system that exists that seems like there's no, there's no way to break it. Even the people that are in it and want to try to break it can't at the end of the day, um, so that's what I enjoyed about it. I also um, enjoyed seeing just the characters go back and forth between realizing that they came across something that is going to make them a lot of money and then realizing that making a lot of money means that a bunch of people are essentially going to be homeless. Um, so that, those are some of my thoughts, but I'd love to piggyback off of other people too.
1: Yeah, Jeff, what did you think about the film? We have, this is one of our big ensemble movies, and we have a couple of these that are always come out to each year. You know, Steve Carell, you know, Christian Bale, um, Brad Pitt, uh, a number of others. Uh, what did you think about the film?
2: Uh, well, I did I did learn a lot from it, which I think mission accomplished. That's what they, they want. They want people talking about this. They want people beginning to see the ways they have been played. Um, and it's done by Adam McKay, who is a surprising director for this, because he's the guy who gave us Anchorman. Um, but he really knows how to make something entertaining, and he really uh, is a pretty good director of actors. Um, he knows what a production needs to keep our attention. And the movie really plays on that. Um, when they start rolling out the explanations of how this happened, and they get to the more complicated stuff, the movie makes just a flat-out joke, just admits that in order to teach us what happened, we have to get it from a celebrity. We have to be watching and listening to somebody that we already worship to some extent. And it goes so far as to put Margot Robbie from the Wolf of Wall Street note in a bubble bath to explain one of the more complicated financial ideas. Later they get Selena Gomez, of all people, uh, to sit next to an economist at a table and have a conversation about something that I doubt even she yet understands, yeah. um, <laughs> in order to um, basically dupe us into learning. Um, but really, that is the whole movie. I mean, that's also what's going on uh-huh. on the level of it's Brad Pitt, it's Ryan Gosling, it's Steve Carell, it's all these guys. Um, and so I I found it simultaneously worthwhile, educational, and insulting um, awesome. because... Yeah. I think a film like Spotlight proves that you can um, explain complicated things and get us to see a bigger picture about a problem uh, without uh, stooping to, I don't know, just pandering. And so. I
4: think that's where we differ. Like, to me, the whole movie was satire.
2: Oh, yeah. I agree with that. And that's
4: all of those words you just used mean that they did their job. If they're trying to create a satire, you should be. You should feel irritated and mad, and also educated, and also laughing all at the same time.
2: But Spotlight gives me a sense of what to do now, or at least how to care, or how to um, that that there is some hope. Mm-hmm. Um, the Big Short just left me going, "Well, wh- wh- what's the what's the point? I mean, why why even involve myself in these situations? Mm-hmm. Um, it just felt like uh, laughter before sailing off a cliff. And in a way, like we said earlier, that's true, um, but in a, in, a, in a time when we see somebody, and I'm not gonna talk about who I'm voting for here, but you see a lot of support for somebody like Bernie Sanders who is actively showing that you can do things differently and people will listen and you don't have to have the support of the criminals to subvert the criminals. Um, and so that gives me hope. And the movie doesn't give me any glimmer of hope like that. Um, but I think that's
4: how a lot of people feel. Like I think. S- so many people in our country are just disillusioned at this point that no matter no matter who our president is, no matter what our politics are, the system itself is so corrupted that no matter who's in charge, there's too many layers to it.
1: Yeah, and, and the themes that I think are being lifted up in this film beyond the, the economics and the finance and also the historical marker, because it's also a historical film, right? It marks a particular historical time. Is that the big, I think the big theological question that's behind something like the Big Short is that one of the things that makes us most vulnerable is the loss of home. You know, the idea that m- for many people there's this primal drive to have a sense of place, um, a place that I can call my own, a place that I can raise my children in safety, a place that I can have something hanging on the wall that reminds me this is my place, this piece of turf. And there's throughout the the films that we are looking at, and we'll talk about Brooklyn later. The sense of place and home is 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 also a sense of anxiety for people right now, and that's the part I think that's really interesting about this film. Um, Not only that it came out when it did, but also what it stirred up in other conversations. It wasn't so much, if you read the reviews, it's not so much people nailing the question of did they get the finances right or did they, but it was more about that this anxiety that Americans still feel about could this happen again? Could I lose my house? Could I lose my job? So it was much more about this idea of of where do I have a sense of place, which is a very deep theological question, you know, which I really thought was pretty interesting. Um, Let's let's turn our attention, and obviously we'll come back to some of these themes again, but let's turn to another ensemble piece that got to another point of anxiety for Americans, and that was the movie Spotlight. Uh, Spotlight it um, draws us again to a moment in, in American history um, just a few years back um, with the Boston Globe um, in 2001 um, uncovering um, this uh, pers- persistent cover-up of, of, of in the Catholic Church of covering up for abuse of young people um, by priests. Um, The film uh, stars a number of notables, including Michael Keaton, um, really driving the question home as far as what is the power of journalism? What is the role that telling the truth actually has? And also, I think even most profoundly, when you you have an institution that you've put your trust in, your identity in, will you believe the truth of it if it somehow violates your identity? Because one of the key questions of the film is that there's a the cover-up is absolutely systemic, and it's not merely just within the church itself, but very entire communities of people will not believe the truth that people that they put their trust in, particularly police, they put, put trust in God in, could possibly violate that, and they will not transgress that. It was um, of the movies that you know that, that I saw in the Oscar run-up. It was the one that certainly really left me pretty gutted, um, quite frankly. And it, it deals with one of the emotionally touching and anxiety-provoking issues. You can imagine violence against children. Um, I, I thought the performances were amazing in the film. I thought the score in the film was absolutely pitch perfect. This very subtle musical score that comes in and comes out. It doesn't overwhelm. It keeps a musical signature of a piano moving through the film that pulls you through the narrative in a very gentle way. Um, but allows you not to be overwhelmed sonically, but allows you to see the movement in the characters evolving. Uh, what, what are some reactions and thoughts about Spotlight?
3: Well, I really like that they didn't put a heavy hand on uh, the abuse aspect as far as showing it. Or, um, you know, there, there are a couple scenes where you see small children, but there's nothing going on. It's much more of a um, All the President's Men. It's really a story about these journalists uncovering the story, because you don't need a heavy hand for this topic, right? I mean, we all know it. It is all horrific, and I don't need to see it for for me to know in my gut this is horrific. And I think the director does a beautiful job of that, um, of showing us just enough uh, to make our hearts start to swell, and then following these journalists on this path.
1: Yeah. You other thoughts, spotlight?
2: Yeah. Um, I was just amazed at what wasn't in this film. Um, I I sort of hold films like this up to All the President's Men and uh, Michael Mann's The Insider, Uh, which are both so powerful and affecting and and give me a lot of hope, even though you see characters going through hell to try and make incremental change. Um, But most movies like this, at some point, uh, they introduce a gun, somehow whether it's just a threat against somebody who's trying to tell the truth, um, or they develop a romance between two of the journalists or two of the truth tellers. Um, they had every opportunity, they didn't go for it. Um, and like you said, again, the abuse, anything to uh, persuade us of what we do not need to be persuaded about, about how severe this is. It focused on procedure, um, it focused on systems, which is interesting, you know, they, they, they keep saying that themselves, we're going after um, systemic problems. Um, And I just thought that the movie didn't just make me value truth-tellers, it didn't just make me value newspapers and journalists, it made me value the Freedom of Information Act. It made me value the fact that they could go digging for these things, and when they were denied those things, they had rights to demand them. And so right now, we need movies like this that remind us that we are just around the corner from situations where if we are denied access to information and to truth, Um, it can have devastating consequences for people. And so I'm very, very grateful for that. I'm also grateful for an ensemble cast that was relatively humble, as Hollywood ensemble casts go. They really served the story instead of themselves. Um, I want to particularly call out Lee Schreiber, who gave such a sense of dignity and integrity and authority without ever chewing any scenery. Um, Subdued all the way through. All the way. He is the subdued. And Stanley Tucci who is usually a ham, uh, turned everything inward and was so restrained and I thought just became an amazing character that way. And Rachel McAdams, who served her character and her role for the sake of illuminating information. And we know very little about her. Mm -hmm. And that was the right choice.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there were some really pretty tender human beats throughout the film. Uh, Rachel McAdams' grandmother, who's a devout Catholic, goes to mass three times a week. um, And just wrestling with the impact that she knows that once this story is told, what it will do to her, <laughs> and seeing the weight of that, and the weight of what it costs to tell the truth in the face of what we cons- what we mean by faith, and and I think the beautiful part of this film, actually, that was also quite telling, is a is a Christian film. I, I'll even use that term because 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 the baseline of this is what is the church in so many ways, is that. All of the, um, because of the nature of Boston, and they play this out. But all of the reporters are all lapsed Catholics, and and they have this uneasy relationship with the church. But yet at the same, they're not trying to destroy the church because they're angry at the church. They're they're angry at what's happening to children. Um, and I thought that was a really deft move on there. There was no kind of kind of that that kind of typical, you know, the the priest is the evil you know person. Let's destroy him. Um, even though that could be read in that way. But I think it's a poor reading of the film. I think it was much more about... There was a sorrow that, they, that for all of these journalists, they wanted the church somehow in their life. And a matter of fact, I think it was Mark Ruffalo's character who says, I always believed I was going to go back to the church. I always believed I was going to go back, and now I can't, <laughs> right? And it was such a, such a, such a poignant
2: moment. Well, Tom McCarthy is a great director of, of stories about community. I mean... Um, his one of his early films, the the Station Agent, which is one of my all time favorite oh, yeah, films, yeah. you know, with Peter Dinklage, Patricia Clarkson, Bobby Cannavale, Michelle Williams, creates this little community in the middle of nowhere, and it's just one of the most human, compassionate beautiful stories about how we can help each other be better and find a family when we don't have one. And Faith had a very interesting but subtle appearance in that story as well. So it makes me increasingly intrigued about McCarthy as a storyteller. He helped co-write Up for Pixar. Um, he was very instrumental in The Wire, which is all about community. In fact, he acted in that. Um, he's one of my favorite directors. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anna, are you right? going to something? Well, yeah. the
4: most powerful moment for me was um, when the spotlight editor brings the list to his predecessor, and he has to make a choice of whether he's going to circle those names or not. And I think that that scene was the most powerful for me because that speaks to the state of the system, that it's that top person of power who's usually a white man who needs to do the right thing in order for the system to change, in order for things to be brought to light. So that was, for me, the most powerful moment.
1: Yeah. Yeah, good. Well, on that note, as far as one of the themes, certainly, that, that was through these films was um, the vulnerability of human beings and the fragility of human beings. In Spotlight, you know, we're looking at the question of children and, being put, and young people put in the protection and the possibility of being protected by people who we trust and then being violated. Room uh, takes that to a whole different level. Uh, Room it was based on a novel uh, that won critical acclaim, told from the standpoint of a young boy, Um, who, spoiler alert, um, um, is uh, in captivity. His mother has been a in, um, been c- captive in an underground uh, holding place, um, sexually abused over years that you know, causes the birth of a child. Um, and the the events that transpire in order for the mother to care for this child. Uh, the actress uh, Brie Larson is also um, considered you know you know one of the one of the shots for for the Oscar. Um, her performance you know, getting rave reviews. Um, Jeff Overstreet, uh, talk to us about Room.
2: Uh, Well, you know, it's a story about this this mother and child who are locked in a room um, by their cruel captor who um, we only sort of get a sense of him like a monster lurking around the edges except for a couple of appearances. But most of the, at least the first third of the film, takes place in this tiny space uh, where they creatively um, give us a sense of it as a world in itself. And you get the sense of uh, Brie Larson is so masterful in being um, imaginative and fun and playful for the sake of this child. Um, um, you referenced life is beautiful in our conversation before uh, we started recording. But it's, it's similar to that, or you did, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, and you, you get the sense that there's this tremendous burden of responsibility to to hang on to joy for the sake of the child when you know full well this is probably not going to end well, and even if it does end well, you'll be carrying this for the rest of your life. Um, Much is made of the first third of the film, and it's very well done in what it doesn't show you in creating the power and that sense of pressure, that sense of claustrophobia. Then the film takes a leap, and I don't want to spoil anything, but um, it asks us then to consider... Uh, what can happen uh, after something like that and where it goes from there is interesting and I think realistic? Um, the performances remain very strong Jacob Trebley, who plays this five-year-old boy is unbelievably convincing It's one of those great child roles you see about every five years like uh, Quavanzanae Wallace in um, Beasts of the Southern Wild or Max Records in um, Where the Wild Things Are Uh, It's one of those where it's just that the child is somehow oblivious to the camera. I don't know how they do it. It just seems completely convincing and that adds to the power of it. Um, I'm grateful that the film did not feel, as with Spotlight, the need to subject us to scenes of rape and sexual abuse and other forms of violence. Um, I do, though, think that a great deal of this movie's power comes from the actors and from just the fundamentals of the situation. How could you not be moved by this story? When we're talking about cinematic excellence, there aren't particular images I'm going to carry with me forever from this film. Um, And the film starts by giving us the boy's point of view of most things, but then very quickly departs from that and starts giving us more dramatic shots from more... um, conventional camera angles. It starts stepping back into things like if there's a dramatic moment, it cuts to super slow-mo, so you see someone running to the camera. And that, those are push-button techniques. Those are, we, we, are, associ- we, we are accustomed to responding emotionally to those things, and it's not necessarily as genuine uh, a response. So I feel like the, the film kind of frays uh, in its, its power and influence and what it really wants to say about all this. Having said that, you come to a movie with your own personal experiences. And all through this movie, I was thinking, this is a film about me growing up in a very uh, closed, cloistered, evangelical bubble, being told the world outside is not to be connected with or believed in or messed with, uh, being told that everything is scary, um, and having to live and survive in my imagination. And then going to a school called Seattle Pacific University where they tell you to engage the culture and change the world. And suddenly, I was just confused and thinking, Is, can this be real? And starting to unlearn what I had learned, to quote a wise man. And um, I thought that as a, as a work of art that can open up ways to talk about all of those small places we've come from, and the big places we're trying to learn to live in, and you could say that that's America, trying to learn to live in a you know a globalized culture. Um, there are so many ways to interpret this film and apply the, the parlance of this film to important conversations. I'm really grateful it's out there. Yeah,
3: that's great. Can I just make one real yeah, quick yeah, yeah, note yeah, yeah. that this is also based on a true story. The book was based on a story, I think it was out of Austria, where a father... Um, imprisoned his daughter for years and years and years and raped her, and there yeah. was a child from it. That's what the book... Well, and we've
2: seen Airbus recent top, so. versions of that here in America, too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Well, in a good segue from, you know, Jeff, your your observation as far as, you know, the way in which, you know, this this small world that we're in gets expanded, uh, the movie Brooklyn, uh, based on a um, novel by Colm uh the Irish novelist who's been shortlisted for the uh, Man Booker Prize a number of times, um, uh, stars uh, Saoirse Ronan, um, who uh, was introduced to the world uh, in the movie Lovely Bones, um, she's also been in a number of other films. Um, really in this role, um, we see a, a, a classic immigrant story of a young woman who moves from Ireland uh, in the 50s um, to, uh, to America, particularly to Brooklyn. Um, to start a new life, um, being commissioned by her family to get a better life than she has and what it's like to be torn between two worlds. Um, of our films that we've looked at so far, I would say that probably it's the most classic love story. Uh, it's the one love story we really have in the mix. Uh, so Jenny, um, specialist of love stories and yes. historical fiction, uh, talk to us about Brooklyn.
3: I'm so glad we get to end on a beautiful note. This is such a beautiful... <laughs> That's why I didn't go alphabetical. ...film, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, this is just gorgeous to watch. First off, the production design, the cinematography, the costuming—it's uh, almost like being inside a dream. Like somebody, that just the way the colors are portrayed and they pop, uh, the way the actors move through Brooklyn and Ireland—it really is um, magical, and you're you're coming through as as. Saoirse Ronan's character is coming of age. You are also coming through this sort of dreamscape and into uh, her reality of Brooklyn. Uh, It's excellent. I don't think it's going to get much buzz or get uh, much awards because the tale is so simple. There's no rape or torture or blood. Um, I was watching the film just waiting for that shoe to drop, right? Because every Oscar film has to have some horrible, horrible thing happen to the protagonist for it to be taken seriously. And so I just kept waiting and waiting. And when I watch movies with my husband, he likes to talk through movies. And he'll be like, this is going to happen. And I look at him and I say... It's not that kind of movie. Like, will you stop? It's, that's not going to happen. It's not ki- that kind of movie. And I wish I had someone tell me before, it's not that kind of movie. Okay, so go in knowing that there's not, you know, the gun in the first act that's going to shoot somebody in the head in the, in the third act. Um, it's really a movie about this girl, this Irish immigrant, finding her way and coming of age and finding this small slice of happiness in middle-class America in the 50s. Um, there's nothing grander than that about the story, but the story is so realistic and true and beautiful. I think that's what's touching about it. It actually was the highest rated of all the films nominated on Rotten Tomatoes. It got the highest rating, but again, I don't think uh, the Academy is going to look at it that way. Um, I would suggest that people see it because it's artistically and richly satisfying uh, it doesn't have that raw punch of Mad Max or Revenant. Uh, it doesn't you know, expose the world's horrors like Spotlight and Room, but it touches your heart and it almost feels like an embrace. And I think that's so rare in films today, especially films that are taken seriously and not cheesy, uh, that I really recommend people go and see it.
1: Yeah, and also I would just kind of echo in on some of the things that I was thinking about the film. It's one of the few films I've seen in a long time that takes seriously the weight, the responsibility, and the complications of being in a family. Uh, the film is really a story of a young girl who the, the hopes of her family are being placed very heavily upon her shoulders to go have a better life than is possible to the one that they are going to have. And that immigrant story is so palpable in the story. But also, it complicates it in the sense of that she, the the main character, deeply loves her family, deeply loves her mother, deeply loves her sister. And so many narratives today of immigrant stories or overcoming things are all about how do I get out of my family as fast as possible, my family's a horrible place to be, they kind of Kick my dreams apart. I'm going to now get beyond it. I'm going to get on the open road. I'm going to become something different. You know, roll credits. This is a film that's not about that. It's about that the heritage from which she came from is so rich and so powerful um, that she can't separate herself between these two worlds. And she's torn between them, but it also makes her who she is. And, the, and again, not to spoil it, because I do think you need to see it. One of the turnkey relationships she has is really this busybody in her town who, who owns this bakery. And the, the, although there's not a gun, and although there's not explosions, although there's not nuclear weapons in there, what you do see is how powerful one sp- small-minded person, um, what they can do to destroy a human soul um, is more powerful than a nuclear detonation sometimes. Yeah, and, and the way that Sosha Ronan has to deal with the reality of this one small-minded person that will either tear her world apart or, or do something to it. And how she stands in the midst of that conversation I thought was more powerful in many ways than most apocalyptic Marvel spectacles actually.
2: Um, any other thoughts on Brooklyn, Jeff or, or Anna? Uh, just two quick things. One, Sersha Ronan has been a strong presence for a long time with a lot of great directors and I've been waiting to see how much of it was her accent and her eyes. Um, she has amazing guys. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, amazing. If yeah, you watch yeah. Atonement or you watch Hannah or a lot of Grand Budapest Hotel, so many of the films she's been in even recently, that's clearly what they notice. Um, in this film, she grows up and becomes a, a substantial actress um, playing a lot of different notes. I was worried that she was going to take the Kate Blanchett route and go for these sort of very high acting yeah. kind of roles, but this is a very nuanced, humble, even funny sometimes performance. Yeah. Uh, secondly, I'd say that what struck me about it was that there are so many stories, and this relates to what you were saying, Jeff. Um, there are so many stories about you know the the rebel and the individual going out and proving themselves. There are also stories of saints who give up everything for loving your neighbor. But the command is love your neighbor as yourself. And throughout the movie, I was thinking this is this is weird because this movie is about the balance about how do you show love and respect to your family show love and respect to the the community that raised you and yet fulfill what you are called to be um and somehow hold on to all of that and i think this film gets that just right
3: well and to have it be shown as a girl becoming into a woman i mean that's so rare just in and of itself seeing a coming-of-age story of a woman um it's just rare and then to again have it search your own and play that so impeccably um, yeah, it's, it's worth a watch. And
1: it's also, I mean, again, back to the idea of a love story, it's, it's, it's a powerful demonstration of what happens to a person when they're truly loved. Um, you know, she's she's painfully lonely, and, and she just shows it in, in so many powerful ways in the film of what it is to be isolated and alone in a world that she just doesn't understand, doesn't understand her, and what it means for just this simple moment where it's a boy-meet-girl story, um, but what it means to be loved And what you become and the power that comes when you're loved by somebody. I mean, its and and this is why I think it's a movie that actually, of the films that we see, it'll be one of the ones that'll last. Um, I can imagine this being one that people will watch again and again. I can imagine that people will come back to it. Um, And I I hope that it is because I think it's a really beautiful story. Um, Anything you want to add to that or is it good? Okay, so we're gonna take a break right now and we'll come back for our question and answer time and so our audience has some questions for us as we come back to the Kindling's Muse. Here at Hales Ales. I'm Jeff Keust, your host, and we'll be right back. Well, we're back here at the Kindling's Muse here at uh, in Fremont at, at Hales, Ales, and Brewery. We're here with Jeff Overstreet, with Anna Miller and Jenny Spohr, as well as Carlo working our boards and giving us good insight. I'm Jeff Kiesch, your host, and we got some questions from our audience. Our topic tonight is the best picture nominees uh, for the Oscars and what they're telling us about culture. We got a question from Zach. Uh, Zach's got a great question here. I'm going to uh, hand it to you. So, Zach, uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us that question?
0: Uh, as a Tom McCarthy fan,
1: can you explain the cobbler? <laughs> Jeff oh. Overstreet,
2: tell us about The Cobbler uh, well I haven't seen it um, there's a good reason for don't that don't hide your light under a bushel my friend I, I, I want to maintain my respect for Tom McCarthy and I, there, there are rumors he's directed this film that, that went almost straight to Netflix uh, that has been called not just an Adam Sandler film But the worst Adam Sandler film. Wow. (laughs) Wow. And there's actually a list, I guess. Uh, He plays a cobbler. If I get this right, I may be wrong. He He makes makes shoes. He makes shoes. And if he puts them on, he...
1: He becomes the people of the shoes that he makes.
2: Yeah. He morphs. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes a project goes wrong. I don't know. Did he write that one? He
0: did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was reading an interview with him... And I, I, he he started Spotlight like directly after finishing it. They came out like eight months apart right. or something.
1: And they got the parried. idea that in the same year he's nominated for a ton of Razzies and
2: a ton of Oscars yeah. Yeah. for
1: two different movies that are absolutely you know zero percent Rotten Tomatoes,
4: 98, 99, or whatever.
1: What makes Unreal.
2: this what makes this hurt is that there has been one director, Paul Thomas Anderson. Who proved that you can make a great Adam Sandler movie? Yes. And when I heard Tom McCarthy had cast Adam Sandler, I was thinking, "It's gonna, it's, it's gonna happen again." I know it is because he made The Visitor, and he, yeah, he's, yeah. I don't know how to answer yep. that yeah. question. <laughs> so. All right, so uh,
1: Kevin, uh, I had it to you, and you got some question here. All right. Um, so my question, my three favorite films this year, American films, were Creed, The Danish Girl, and Straight Outta Compton. And they were all about people on the margins. And I feel like the the ones that are nominated aren't really about people on the margins. And like we talked about the first segment, like people on the margins are kind of left mm-hmm. on the margin. Absolutely. And it's really sad to me. Like you, like in the, we talked about The Revenant. Mm-hmm. The people on the margins in that film are left on the margins.
3: Right. Yeah, they're not They're not brought to the so, center so and they should have been.
1: So what do we say about that? Is that because that... Um, the current movies that are moving through the Hollywood pipeline aren't there. There's not good scripts. Is it because the focus groups are saying nobody wants to see movies about the people on the on the margins? I think that's wrong. I mean, well, these Jeff, are what
4: did you say earlier about um, people want to see the hero?
2: Oh, well, yeah, they 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 want to look up there and see a hero they can relate to, so they can they they can put themselves into that character. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you think about it, these movies are about people on the margins. Spotlight is about the victims of sexual abuse. In some ways, it's, a, it's, it's about victimized young homosexuals in some cases. Um, in Mad Max, it's about um, people who are, you know, it's about human trafficking and, and sex slaves. Um, in uh, Brooklyn, you know, we keep making the center smaller and smaller and smaller. Brooklyn is about somebody who, for some people in America, is on the margins because she's a refugee. Um, but in most of these cases, to get the film made, it had to have a white male at the center. And so you had to have Mad Max. I mean, it th- didn't need to be a Mad Max movie. Um, you, yeah, you, yeah, Spotlight absolutely. is about you know the team of white reporters. Um, um, and, Brooklyn, I guess, you know, you have Saoirse Ronan, so um, people will go for it. And it's actually quite a surprise to me that that film is in is with the finalists. It deserves to be, but I'm surprised it's there. So I think we're not going to see films about people on the margins, so to speak, um, getting these kinds of honors until you get executives, <laughs> people in power who are willing to greenlight these projects, believing that they won't make money. But of course, the big joke this year has been movies about women and about black characters don't make money. Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so.
3: Mm-hmm. It did. And, well, and it that's, did. you know, that's, 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 the, that's that point too, that it's, um, these stories do make money, and people do want to see Straight Out of Compton and Creed and Chirac and some of these other films. People do go out in droves to see them. And so, the answer to the question is yes, Hollywood ex- is ignoring these films that were very well made, very well done, had box office success, and they are being completely snubbed for no good reason other than. Right.
1: Which which begs the question as a follow-up, and this gets into a little bit of, of kind of this dialogue, is what is shaping what people think a best picture actually is? I mean, what I mean it you know, what what is what constitutes the best picture nominee? What what are some things that you think kind of go into that alchemy for you as panelists?
3: For me as a film goer, right? I'm not part of the academy. That'd be nice. I get a bunch of free movies, but um, For me, when I'm thinking best picture, I'm looking at every element of the film being exceptional. So the directing needs to be exceptional. The acting needs to be exceptional. The production design, the cinematography needs to be exceptional. The script needs to be exceptional. Um, All of those those things combine to make, for me, a best picture. And I think a lot of the ones uh, this year are lacking in many of those respects. Some of them are great scripts. Um, And some of them are great acting, but they don't have some of these other elements that I think should elevate a film uh, to Best Picture. I know we're going to cover some of the ones that we think were left out this year, but, I mean, that's just me personally.
1: Yeah. Anna, what about you?
4: Well, for me, I mean, it's mostly just about the story. And I'm thinking as we're sitting here that that's what our Kindlings Fest theme is for the Summer Festival this year.
1: July 29th, 29th. <laughs> Mark your calendars.
4: We planned that. No, I'm just kidding. But um, for me, I think, and for people, you know, maybe in their 30s and younger, it's, it's more about the story, and it's more about seeing someone on the screen who they can relate to, and it's less about the quality of the film it's less about the cinematography I mean I think there are people that are extremely interested in those things about films but I think the generic moviegoer is interested in the story and we want to start seeing stories that are not just white men and or white women
2: yeah
1: Jeff what about you when you think about that how do you how do you there
2: there's so much this is so complicated people don't read anymore and so they go to the movies for stories but the movies began as moving pictures. You can take away a narrative and still have a movie. You can't take away images. And cinema at, at its height is teaching you to look at a moving picture and think about poetic associations between um, the elements of the picture, between the motion, between time passing, uh, so that you are making connections beyond just narrative. I don't want to diminish narrative and say it isn't important. but the more I watch movies, the more my favorites are becoming films that have powerful images that stay with me, or powerful, not just pictures, not just like a museum, but, but powerful sensory experiences of time passing on the screen. So, I look at films of Andrei Tarkovsky, this great Russian director who is revered by the great filmmakers of today because he captured something in pictures in moving pictures that you can't do in any other medium, and that's why he's imitated, but widely misunderstood, because then they have to slap a conventional story, believing that that's what it takes to hold people there. I think if you're watching great cinema, You stop thinking so much about story and you are just mesmerized by a sense that some kind of meaning is shining through imagery. That's why Mad Max is one of my favorites of these is because the imagery is so fantastic and the momentum is so great all the way through that I feel like I was there. Uh, The Revenant does that too. If the story didn't frustrate me so much, I I would love this movie for its aesthetic experience. Um, so you look at Tarkovsky, you look at Kieslowski, for me the best pictures are those where I really feel like I had an encounter with mystery in real time. Um, um, the great um, film critic uh, Andre Bazan talks about holy moments, moments where you feel like God just stepped into the theater somehow uh, through, those, through those images. And um, So it's whatever movies can do that nothing else can do that's what it boils down to for me Um, yeah yeah good
1: yeah i'll i i think i'll never forget um seeing schindler's list and seeing the girl with the red coat Um, there are images like that that i'll never leave my mind and forever change the way i saw the world um peter has a question for us peter
0: well uh, hello it's it's more of a comment uh uh, i come from europe i'm I'm from italy so i Watch *Bridge of Spies*, which was great uh, uh, after the, the the Star Wars mania. It was like, <laughs> so what I see after Star Wars *Bridge <laughs> of Spies*? Wow! And um, <coughs> and f- for for Europeans, it looked like it it told us a lot about America, uh, about what is uh, at the foundation of American civilization, which is not only. Freedom, but also market, because the the character played by Tom Hanks is so cynical. He's a good guy, he's a Jimmy Stewart guy, but he's also very cynical, and that's the way you know Spielberg presents very well characters in first quarter of an hour. And th- that conversation about the accident and the insurance that happens at the beginning, you know, that shows that he's a cynical character, uh, but also idealistic. And that America cannot stand without the two of them. Like when one fails, uh, okay, we have to restrict freedoms. Oh yes, but it's not convenient for us if we, you know, if we restrict freedoms because then how are we going to, you know, uh, how are we going to trade with others, for example? That's I found that extremely interesting for for the movie, and um, <coughs> and I found the the, the screenplay uh, perfect. Uh, I'm never tired. All, all, all during this movie that is, you know, it's classic, it's Spielberg, it's Tom Hanks, you know, it's like something, it's Cold War, it's something you already listen to, but you're never tired, and it's two hours and a half. So, and I found that good. Thank you. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, great. yeah. yeah it's worth mentioning that, uh, that uh, Spielberg got help from the Cohen brothers on the script. Uh, some of the best writers we have going. So,
1: Yeah, and it actually, when, when I went and saw Bird Despise, um, it, my wife and I, who are huge Coen Brothers fans, it was really a delight because we could actually tell the touches. You could really feel that the humor, this picture turns, the sharpness of dialogue. Um, Spielberg, actually, I think that could be a, actually quite a beautiful relationship if he wants to continue that one. I thought that was great. Uh, One of the things that we wanted to do as well tonight is we wanted to talk about what got missed. Uh, If we were to kind of put out there the uh, the films that we thought should have been nominated for Best Picture and didn't, uh, what should those be? So, um, Jenny, let's start with you. What do do you think should have been on the list that wasn't on the list?
3: Um, Absolutely, I mentioned it before. Absolutely, straight out of Compton. Uh, It was an amazingly done film. It had all of those elements that I spoke of uh, before. Uh, And (laughs) as someone who grew up in the era of, of when this takes place. It's, it's about um, NWA and their rise to popularity. Uh, and then we, I was up here in Seattle and we had Sir Mix-a-Lot up here. So we, <laughs> you know, our own little West Coast <laughs> going on, but, uh, but basically being oblivious to the incris- intricacies of that world, what I felt about Straight Compton similar as Jeff was saying about Mad Max, you felt like you were there. I felt like I was almost a member of NWA in a sense, of watching this film and watching these relationships. So definitely straight out of Compton. Also wanna um, give props to Love and Mercy. Uh, it's a film, a biopic about um, Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, and I, my dad was a big Beach Boys guy, so I took him to that, and I'm like, ah, oh, Beach Boy movie, amazing performances by the entire cast. Uh, Totally overlooked in every category for Love and Mercy. And also Ex Machina. I cannot believe Ex Machina is not in, I mean, forget the Martian, for God's sakes, and put Ex Machina in there if you want some sci-fi.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oscar Isaacs in that role is just fantastic. Um, I'll also just chime in on Love and Mercy. Um, Paul Dano's, uh, Dano's uh, character of the young Brian Wilson in the film is fantastic. Um, and also for those of you who love seeing films that display creativity, uh, the scenes of writing, the scenes of, of Brian Wilson... His genius just kind of unleashed and people just do not understand what he's doing. There's this fantastic scene when they're when they're writing good vibrations and they're and one of the musicians are saying, are you sure you got this right? You're kind of jumping a fifth here, and you're moving around this way. My daughter had just been practicing the piano, and she was actually playing moving in fifths and things like that, and we were telling her, you're doing that wrong, and then we actually watched the movie together, and so she basically told me, Brian Wilson did it, why can't I do it? So um, so you, n- you need films like that to show you that genius is hidden, and maybe not so, but it's, I, I agree with that. I would also add add to the list, I think, one of the ones um, that I that I thought was just really a superb film um, that, uh, that, that again, that Aunt that Jenny just mentioned was Ex Machina. I just really thought that that was just one of the most theological films as far as what is a human life, what what do we understand a life to be. Um, so I just I, don't know, I, I was really surprised that was actually overlooked. I thought that was a fantastic screenplay and well executed. Yeah, Anna.
4: I think I haven't seen it yet, but I think I'd have to put Creed on the list um, yeah. Yeah. just because it seems like that's a... That's Michael B. Jordan. That's a story that resonates with uh, my black brothers and sisters, I think, more than I've heard any other movie resonate with them, so, yeah.
2: Yeah. A couple, this is cheating a little bit, because this was actually nominated for Best Foreign Film last year, but then it didn't play open wide until this year, Mm -hmm. Timbuktu, um, which is a film (laughs) about um, a, a Muslim village that is taken over by Muslim extremists. And what you get is a very rare picture of a community uh, of Muslims of very different ways of interpreting uh, their own religion, of interpreting the Quran, And they get into a fierce debate about what it means to honor God, what, it, what the definition of jihad is. And it is a heartbreaking and beautiful story about a family trying to find um, a, hope, a hopeful future for their children. Um, as all of their freedoms and ways of worshiping are taken away by people who just cherry-pick their scriptures uh, and take the ones that give them power uh, rather than um, amplifying uh, their idea of God. And um, I saw in that film basically a microcosm of the church in America mm-hmm. and the debates going on in the church right now. And I would never say they're equal, uh, that they're, you know, it's a perfect match. Uh, definitely not. But um, we can learn uh, to love our neighbors by watching this film, we can learn how to talk to our own community by watching this film. And it's also visually, um, on every technical level, it's just a masterpiece. Films that came out this year, I thought Inside Out was one of Pixar's best films. Um, I, I don't think I need to say much about that, I think we've probably almost all seen it. Um, but it's just wildly imaginative and one of their best. Um, I'm disappointed that Carol uh, was no, no, not nominated. I thought it was a very sensitively told story, not about an issue, but about two individuals, very broken, very um, desperate to find s- some kind of tenderness and relationship in a context where there was none to be found. And it's t- back to that definition of cinema, it's told very poetically. Every image is loaded with... Um, Layers to read about America at that time um, And I thought the performances were, were spectacular finally I want to mention 45 years Which I think is one of the best films about marriage I've ever seen it's playing in Seattle right now and uh, Charlotte Rampling um, I Don't know that was the best performance by an actress I saw this year
1: yeah, and many people have really put her at the top of the list as far as what what she did in that role. And again, you know the sensitivity of watching a marriage unfold, you know, as it moves towards this you know anniversary year, and then unfolding backwards as far as you learn the truth telling that's happening. Um, our thanks to our panelists, uh, one of the things that we do each time here at the Kinlings Muses is we give our panelists one last thing to say, uh, kind of one passing thought as we look at our topic and also kind of the faith questions that we're asking as well. And um, so, Anna, I'm going to start with you on this. Um, what's something you want to make sure to leave with us tonight?
4: Um, I actually didn't plan anything. I thought that our last thing was going to be saying our, uh, our nominations, but um, I guess... Find good stories, um, support the stories that are from the margins, spend your money on the stories that you know, aren't maybe in the box office that are at independent film festivals. Find find entertainment that's not supported by big money um, but support the smaller artists.
2: Yeah, Jeff Overstreet, anything you wanna add? Um, I think that the role of, of curators Right now is so important. You, you asked about the Oscars and the definition of Best Picture. Um, I think people are losing faith in this stuff. I think they watch it for entertainment, for the. Com- I mean, even even the Super Bowl yesterday, it seemed like most of the conversation online was about the commercials and the half- and the halftime show. I think the Oscars more and more are being seen as just a circus, and they're looking elsewhere. There, the curiosity is growing. And generations are, are, are rising now that distrust that, that whole uh, system. And so I think the role of curators to, to, ha- to go out and find things on the fringes that are well made, that don't have a massive advertising budget, and to highlight those and introduce them to young people. I had the um, surprise privilege of, of teaching a high school class for three weeks this year um, how to write a film review and I asked them to write about the films that they've been thinking about. And three quarters of the class wrote about Ex Machina. Mm -hmm. Um, Others wrote about films their parents had introduced them to like uh, Edward Scissorhands and The Princess Bride Mm -hmm. and Alien and uh, surprising titles, but they were really thinking about them. They hadn't seen 90% of what was in theaters. I thought that was really interesting. They have a whole different theater open to them that's almost timeless. They can go anywhere and see anything. And so we need people to curate and to say, try this, try this. Because that's going to give them opportunities to talk about these fiercely debated topics in our culture in a way that's Mm non-confrontational. It's that Hamlet thing, again, of seeing something volatile played out in front of your eyes that can catch your conscience. And you find yourself learning in a way that you don't learn when you are hard-heartedly engaging on Facebook. Um, And so I think that curation, I'm looking for those reviewers, those teachers, those parents who are actively seeking out the best works of art to raise questions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good. Jenny, what about you?
3: I don't think, um, maybe other than Brooklyn. You pointed out that people might come back to Brooklyn, and I think they might, but I think it's going to get buried because it's too um, kind. I just don't think any of the movies that were nominated have staying power. Have that evocative sense of Schindler's List or some of these, you know, even Casablanca, that is still s- such an excellent film, you know, so many standing so many decades. And that to me is sad that the movies that we've c- boiled up to the top as the best that we have to offer this year are really um movies that n- aren't necessarily worth uh, your time. And so th- I'm excited for next year. Um, if we could have like the Bernie Sanders of <laughs> movies next year or something, the little, you know, outside horse coming in and storming down the Ox- o- Oscars, uh, that would be great.
2: Zoolander 2. I yeah. Yes. That's I'm that's sure
3: Zoolander yeah. 2 yeah, is China. going to be maybe that's birth it. of a nation. That's maybe right. that'll be it. Birth of a nation next year.
1: Um, yeah, for my thoughts, I, I you know as I look at our nominees, you know, M- Mad Max, The Revenant, Martian, uh, Bridge of Spies, The Big Short, Spotlight, Room, Brooklyn. Um, in some ways, uh, I challenge our listening audience, and I challenge us as well as we go to the films and that we see, and the ones that we hold up and and revere, um, is to always try to think as much as we want to try to see Jesus in the films. These are all films that also show us what Jesus loves. <laughs> Hard people to love, uh, broken people to love, uh, people who are in many ways, shape, or form, even though they're lifted up as far as majority faces, are still people that God loves. And in all of that, I think that my prayer and my thought leaving us tonight in the best pictures and as we watch Chris Rock um, do his thing with uh, hosting the Oscars and watching all the spectacle that is there, remember that there are still people who want to frame a shot to show you a picture that there is still something worth loving in our world, and that the, the world is not forsaken. It is not some kind of you know, god-forsaken Martian landscape. It is not some burned out Holocaust landscape. It is not some horrible place where children are constantly caused violence, um, that there are other things in this world. Even those are true statements. There's also more to it than that. Um, I just came back from Sundance Film Festival, uh, where we went and looked at some documentaries for our Killings Fest event in 2016. Um, and one of the smallest little films that we saw was a film about Bolivian miners um, that was a short 25-minute film that people were weeping five minutes in. Um, Heaving in tears, the filmmaker who made it scraped together whatever money she had to tell the story of this woman and her seven children slaving away in these mines, hauling rocks up and down the side of this mountain, um, who just loved each other, uh, who were a family. And what you could see in there is she had actually told a story and showed us a picture in a very simple way that people who left the room wanted to go and hug their children. (laughs) And so this is the power of films. And so films and images, as Jeffers remind us, as our panelists remind us, tonight is still with us. They hold power to shape. They hold power to change us. Um, they are memories that keep us up at night and hopefully provoke us to change the world for the better. And so from the Kindlings Muse, I want to just thank you for listening tonight. Uh, thank our panelists, Jeff Overstreet, Anna Miller, and Jenny Spohr, and Carlo, who's always working us and keep making sure we're heard. I'm Jeff Kuse, your host, and we'll yeah. see you next month. where We're talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and who's coming in this year. So we'll see you then. Good night. <laughs>